The internet has transformed the way we connect, share, and access information. It has also transformed the journalism industry. Shifting focus from print to digital, newsrooms are evolving how they tell stories and reach audiences. It's also affected their business models. Publishers' advertising revenues, the backbone of many business models, have taken a steep decline as more advertising options have become available through the internet. This industry trend has had follow-on effects for the industry as a whole. Journalists like Emma Gilchrist are trying to change the tide. In 2018, she co-founded the Narwhal, an independent news organization focused on in-depth environmental reporting, sustained through an ad-free, subscription-based business model. Under this model, their newsroom continues to expand. What business models will support the sustained evolution of news publishers? What's working now? And what could work in the future? Welcome to Let's Talk About the Internet, a conversation about the future of the internet in Canada. This podcast is part of a partnership between Meta and The Walrus. I'm your host, Mohit Rajans. Emma Gilchrist is the co-founder, editor-in-chief, and executive director of The Narwhal. She joins us to talk about the state of journalism in the digital age. But first, she discussed these topics at The Walrus Talks at Home, News and Platforms. Let's have a listen to that talk. Hi, everyone. I'm Emma Gilchrist. I'm one of the co-founders of The Narwhal, and I'm also editor-in-chief and executive director. Today, I'm here in Victoria on the territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, uh, home to the Songhees, the Squamaw, and the Wasainich, uh people and who still enjoy a very rich relationship with this land until this day. I'm so excited to be here to tell you a little bit about the Narwhal, uh, the, the little whale that could. Uh, we launched about three years ago, um, originally out of British Columbia. And we've now expanded um, to Alberta. We've had reporters in the north, and we just launched a bureau in Ontario as well. And during that time, uh, we've gone from two staff to 16 staff, um, and the single largest source of our funding has become our monthly members, who are readers who voluntarily pay each month to make the Narwhal possible. Um, And it's really interesting to think about how that kind of fundamentally shifts your relationship with the readers. Um, But first, I'll tell you a little bit more about the actual content that we produce on the Narwhal, in case you're not familiar. Um, So we call ourselves an online magazine, um, and we publish in-depth and investigative journalism about Canada's natural world. And there's a few kind of hallmarks of that content. Um, One is the visual. So we really invest in the visual experience on the Narwhal. We have no advertising on our site which enables us to have a really beautiful, full width um, visual experience. Um, And a lot of the places that we report on um, are places that are out of sight and out of mind. So we think it's really important to bring people visuals from those places to help make these massive environmental issues more real for folks. Another kind of hallmark of narwhal journalism is context. Um, So we try to ensure that all of our context, our our stories are really context rich. And the the reason for that is that we really want our journalism to help people make meaning of the world. And um, when I look at some traditional journalism, sometimes I find that it doesn't actually help you make meaning of the world. You kind of get into the he said, she said not a lot of context about the issues um, that would actually help people understand the issues. And kind of the third hallmark of narwhal journalism is that we're really intentionally working to bridge divides. Um, Environmental issues can be incredibly polarizing. 
we really work to bring in people of all different kinds into our journalism, whether that be resource workers, people from rural communities. Um, we really emphasize indigenous perspectives in our work. And we think it's really fundamentally important uh, to harness the power of journalism to bridge divides. Um, in this last year, the organizers told me to brag about myself, uh, so I will a little bit. Um, we won 10 national journalism awards, including a World Press Freedom Award for our investigative reporting on the Site C Dam, the General Excellence Award from the Digital Publishing Awards, and several national magazine awards for photojournalism and, and feature writing. Um, so yeah, we're, we're really thrilled to be helping to pioneer a new model of reader-funded journalism in Canada. And Maybe to speak to that a little bit, I'll just speak a little bit about my background. So I started out my journalism career in the traditional journalism world. Um, so about 10 years ago, I was working at the Calgary Herald. And at that time, like every newspaper in the country had an environment reporter. Basically, over the next decade, I watched all of those beat reporter positions evaporate and the environment be, be left really kind of wide open for the taking um, because there was just so little, you know, in-depth, context-rich coverage happening on that beat. After I left the Herald, I went into the nonprofit sector for four or five years, which at the time I really grappled with. I, I struggled with it because I thought I was leaving journalism forever. Um, but as it turned out, I got to come back around and kind of combine the things that I learned in the nonprofit world uh, with my experience in journalism. And so that's really what we're doing at the Narwhal. So we, we're a nonprofit and we recently became Canada's first English language registered journalism organization, which allows us to issue tax receipts to all of our donors, our members, and it also allows us to receive grants uh, directly from philanthropic foundations, which opens up new and exciting avenues of funding for us. Um, and back to that kind of, you know, shifting relationship with the audience, because our members are such a big part of what we do, our single largest source of funding. Um, this year, they'll give us over $600,000. Um, it really gives us the ultimate freedom and independence to report on what the audience wants and needs. It also encourages us to you know, engage our audience as parts of stories, as sources of story tips. Um, we have a really thriving and um, energetic relationship with our audience and our members, and it's quite a beautiful thing. That's Emma Gilchrist speaking at the Walrus Talks at Home News and Platforms. She joins me now to talk more about journalism's evolving business models. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you co-founded a digital environmental news outlet in an era when traditional business models of ad-based publishers were beginning to falter. What was different about your approach and why did you think this new model might have been the right time. So one of the most unique things about our approach is that we were founded as a nonprofit, which is quite unusual in Canada. We also don't run any advertising. So we kind of take the things that are the mainstays of, of a traditional news business and just threw them out the window. So no ads, no profits, no corporate shareholders, none of that. And we really center our whole model around the audience and our relationship with the reader. So right from the get-go, we started with a membership program where people could pay whatever they could afford each month. So we let people just choose. We raise money through grants as a nonprofit. And those are really the things that make the Narwhal unique. It sounds like a pretty heavy burden to take with that business model because it's not something that's necessarily try tested and true. Why did you think this model 
might have had a chance to survive. Yeah, so I'd spent some time in the nonprofit sector, about five years, and seen how you could raise money through monthly donations, basically. And I think what we did at the Narwhal was really combine some of that thinking from a different sector, from the nonprofit sector, with journalism. I had just seen through my own experience that if you build a community of people who care about something and you provide them with something useful and you build a relationship with them, then a certain percentage of them are likely to be willing to pay for it. It was still definitely a gamble. Like I never would have imagined that we would be where we are now with over 4,000 monthly members. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot of exciting things happen in journalism these days is people picking up on lessons learned from other sectors. You don't have to completely reinvent the wheel, but you can pick up on what has worked elsewhere. I find that really interesting because we often do hear about the idea that traditional journalism is dying. And it's true that the industry is shrinking. We see that many newsrooms have closed during the pandemic. And as somebody who has had experience in newsrooms myself, I know that they just operate different right now. People say that it's impossible to make money at this, that people don't want to read, um, you know, traditional paper anymore. So I'm curious about what you were told before you started the Narwhal and what your experiences proved true versus untrue about the current state of the industry. Yeah, I mean, I definitely was told by a lot of people that what I was thinking of doing was impossible. But I always made the case that the reason people are disengaging from their local newspaper, for instance, is because it's not serving them. Ten years ago, I was an environment reporter at the Calgary Herald. And then over the next decade, I watched every single environment reporter in the country eliminated, basically. You have these huge swaths of topic areas and communities that simply aren't being served by traditional media. I think it's really easy for media moguls to throw their hands up and, and complain about how people, people just aren't interested in them anymore. But it's like, what are you doing to be interesting? Like, what are you doing to engage your community? And the reality is, yeah, the internet did change the world. Pre-internet newspaper editors could be sort of the voice of God and decide what they thought was interesting. And they didn't have to care too much what the community thought was interesting. And the internet has like jumbled that all up. I think in many ways where the traditional news models have struggled is because they failed to serve their communities. And that's all we related to the Narwhal is step in to this vast empty space that was left for us by the fact that very few people were doing environment reporting anymore. It's interesting to look at traditional news outlets and I think to myself, how is nobody even fiddling with this model? Because it's obviously outdated. People don't need to see 15, 20 minutes of weather anymore, right? They need to be served in a different way. So many of the rules that we've all been playing by are just completely arbitrary, right? And I think that's why some of the more exciting ideas in journalism are coming from people who've been outside of journalism. Because if you're just kind of steeped in a certain way of thinking about things, then you can be really restricted by that. One of the cool things at the Narwhal that I'm constantly trying to remind our team of is like, we don't have to fill a certain number of pages. We can choose to publish one story a week if we want to. We can choose to publish five stories a week. Like we get to make up our own rules because we aren't playing the print model. We don't have a print deadline. So if we're killing ourselves to produce more content and it's not high quality, like we need to ask ourselves some questions about that and actually keep going back to like, what is valuable? What do our readers actually need and want? And I don't think that anybody's out there saying, I want more news. They want better news. 
Okay, so you're establishing this trust online, and there's also so much distrust online when it comes to the media that we're referring to. So as a developing outlet, what does it take to win people's trust? And uh, what do you think the industry needs to do to better their trust with their readership and their communities? Yeah, this is this is such a good question. I mean, I wish I had it all figured out, but I don't. But I think being consistent is really important. For a long time, like nobody was really paying attention to us and we didn't have the credibility or respect of like the traditional kind of mainstream news world. But we just kept doing the work and just kept consistently providing reliable, trustworthy, credible content. And eventually we started to break through with that. In terms of building trust, like I think that you need to listen. I think you need to show that you can learn. You need to show some humility and you need to be honest about when you've made a mistake and correct it. One of the best subject lines ever is an oops subject line and oops, we made a mistake. That's literally the highest open rates I've ever seen on subject lines. I've seen it in a few different scenarios and people are like, "Ooh, they made a mistake. And then if you can lean into that and really explain how that happened and the inner workings of it and just be human about it, be genuine, show a little bit of vulnerability around how the news is made then I think you can gradually build trust with folks that way. You mentioned in your talk that the single largest source of your funding is your members, the readers who pay each month to support the Narwhal. How did you build your readership? Well, I mean, in reality, we built a lot of it, especially in the beginning, off social media. We definitely found and built our audience a lot on Facebook in the early days. There was a long time where we had more followers on Facebook than we had people subscribed to our newsletter, for instance. And then we really doubled down on building our newsletter subscriber list. So we basically have a strategy around turning the casual reader into a more regular reader. We've also built that reputation through doing reporting that gets picked up elsewhere, that influences the public conversation. I think at the end of the day, it all comes back to the quality of the journalism. Like you can talk about reader engagement strategies all you want, but if you're not doing good journalism that's valuable and breaking news and sharing new ideas, then you really need that base to work with. It seems to me that you might open yourself up to a different sense of accountability as well. Is there not through some of that social media, this idea that you are consistently in conversation with your readership? Yeah, I mean, it's a whole job. About two years ago, we hired our first full-time audience position at the Narwhal, and it was called Audience Engagement Editor. And they were going to spend their whole time focused on making sure that people were reading our stuff and engaging with our readers. And now we're adding another person to that audience team. We take that responsibility really seriously. And I do think it's different than maybe in a traditional newsroom because of our membership model. We have nearly 5,000 members now who are very engaged and care a lot about what we report on. And they'll let us know if they think that we've messed it up. And that kind of feedback only helps us be better. I think we have a culture in the narwhal of responding and engaging with our readers. Like all of our reporters engage with readers, engage with reader emails, etc. And are expected to kind of keep an open mind about the feedback that they get and how perhaps we can work that feedback into a better story next time or into a different angle on the same story. Okay. So tell me, why did you choose this model? 
of business because it seems like something that to a traditional reporter, let's say, would add another layer to the work that needs to be done. Yeah, it definitely is more work. But I think if you want your readers to be one of your largest source of support, it's kind of the only way. Like you can't both say we want our readers to be in relationship with us and to voluntarily pay for us, but we don't want to talk to them. When we're hiring, we're looking for that in people as well, that they don't necessarily see that as a burden, though it is certainly extra work, but that they see it as a way to make the work more connected to real people and to community. And we're not going to sit in our offices and write our stories and be disconnected from what those stories mean on the ground. So yeah, I think it's just a whole different orientation to the work. Emma, I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to speak about photojournalist Amber Bracken and what happened when the Narwhal sent her to report on the Wet'suwet'en pipeline opposition in November of 2021. Can you walk our listeners through what she was doing there, why she went there, what happened to her that day? Yeah, for sure. So Amber has been covering the opposition to the Coastal Gas Link pipeline for many years now. This is a pipeline that's designed to take natural gas that's obtained through fracking in northeastern BC to the coast where it will be liquefied and exported overseas. It's a very controversial proposal, especially in certain parts of that route. And what she was doing in November, she was documenting some Wet'suwet'en people in a tiny house uh, that were trying to stop the construction of this pipeline. And we had been in touch with the RCMP in the days ahead of this to let them know that Amber was on assignment for us. She had gone with an assignment letter. And yet on the day that the police went in and arrested the people in the tiny house, they also arrested Amber and another filmmaker. And then really where things got extra peculiar is they didn't just arrest Amber, who was rightfully there documenting those arrests, but they kept her in jail for three nights before releasing her. um, And they charged her with contempt of court, which is what they charged the Indigenous people with as well. And so it was kind of the latest in a long string of incidents with the RCMP not respecting the fact that journalists have a right to report, including from within injunction zones, and not acknowledging the special charter rights of journalists to freedom of expression to be there to document what are often violent arrests of Indigenous people. Walk us through what it was like to be running an organization while this is all happening in real time. What are some of the conversations your organization was having and how were you experiencing and dealing with this? Yeah, so it was definitely pretty intense and a kind of all hands on deck situation. It was unprecedented for us. I'd never experienced that, having one of our journalists arrested before. Basically, we got word on the Friday afternoon that she had been arrested. We immediately got on the phone with lawyers working to get her out of jail. Meanwhile, she was actually transferred to another jail. We were unsuccessful in getting her out of jail, but we had all of Canada's media organizations and the Canadian Association of Journalists reaching out and offering support. And they ended up releasing a letter to the public safety minister on the Monday. We also launched a letter writing campaign, which attracted about 6,000 signatures by the Monday and was a way to really engage our readers in this fight. And then as we're racking up this legal bill, we launched a fundraising campaign and our readers donated upwards of $30,000 in like 24 hours to help support getting Amber 
free again and and fighting her continuing legal battle because the reality is that it's still not over. She had the charges against her dropped, but we're still looking at our legal options to hold the RCMP accountable. You mentioned a whole bunch of tactics that you're able to deploy in real time. What did being online enable you to do in response that you not wouldn't have necessarily been able to do in traditional media or print for that matter? I mean, so much. It just allowed us to be really, really nimble. Basically, within 48 hours of Amber being arrested, we were able to launch an online action. I literally just on a Sunday afternoon started looking online for tools that would allow us to start this letter writing campaign. We don't have a lot of bureaucracy, right? So we're able to just kind of make those decisions, get an email out to our 60,000 newsletter subscribers and create a pretty big public movement around something in a really quick way. And then online fundraising is also just really magic in that way, right? So we were able to fundraise really quickly as well. Knowing that we can do that, it gives us the ability to be bold and to be brave and to send journalists to places that lots of traditional news outlets aren't sending journalists. That's part of this story too, is that Amber and journalists like her are often the only ones on the ground witnessing these events that are happening in places that are often out of sight and out of mind. (laughs) And it gives you that sense of autonomy as well to be able to explore without somebody else's press release or media release in mind. People often forget that newsrooms are, are often fed in silos, right? And so in order for an organization like yourself to find stories that need to be told, they're not exactly fed to you in press releases and well-crafted PR campaigns. They're sometimes based on a tip. They're sometimes based on a hunch. Yeah. Yeah, actually, we try to avoid doing stories that come from press releases. Like as soon as we see a press release come out about something, we're like, Okay, not not that, because everybody's going to be chasing that story. And there can be just a huge amount of groupthink in journalism where everybody's attending the same press conferences and reporting on the same press releases. And we really want to try to get beyond that and help our readers make sense of the world that rarely comes from press release journalism. Let's talk a little bit about the idea of what traditional objective reporting is. You wrote about the need to shift from the traditional value of objective reporting to responsible reporting. What's the difference and why do you feel that there is this need for a shift? I think the traditional idea of objectivity in journalism, it was objectivity for white men, right? If there's objectivity, it's based on somebody's perspective. And when you really look at that more closely, none of us can be objective. We all bring lived experience. And that includes all of the white men who have been running newsrooms in Canada for all of these years. They bring their lived experience. And that means that they overlook certain stories and they emphasize different stories. So to me, I think it comes back to that responsibility piece. Are you checking your facts? Are you giving people a chance to comment? Are you fixing mistakes if and when you make them? And not this idea of trying to exist in this space that frankly doesn't exist, this, this space that some would call objectivity. <laughs> I love that. I find it interesting. You mentioned earlier about when dealing with the situation with Amber, you had relied on other associations to show their support. When it comes down to creating online communities, have you found that people are still as willing to support? knowing that you're building your audience and knowing that you do ask for a revenue stream, do you find that associations are still willing in times like this to be able to get the word out for you? 
Yeah, I mean, we were just like bowled over by the amount of support in the case of the Amber Bracken arrest. The reality is in a situation like that, all media organizations have an interest in ensuring freedom of the press and have an interest in ensuring that the RCMP are not illegally arresting journalists. And so they have a horse in that race, too, if you will. I think one of the cool things that happening in journalism as the world changes is there is more opportunity for collaboration and a little bit of a change to the previous very competitive nature of journalism that certainly still exists. Just across the news industry, we're facing so many struggles with things like harassment of journalists. And I've seen a lot of newsrooms collaborating around freedom of the press. And so yeah, I think we're having this moment where journalists are actually coming together more than they have in recent history. I want to say something that might be considered slightly controversial about that. I believe that there's a welcome place for what you're talking about and finding support with each other. But it's so difficult when, on the other hand, from a business perspective, it's so competitive. And so starting to see those changes are really rewarding. It's just unfortunate that it's coming through the idea of, of having to protect each other. It's a little tough when it comes down to big business, especially in Canada for people to show that camaraderie across the board from the person that makes six figures as the host of the big program on the big network right to the blogger who is doing citizen journalism and doing it well. Yeah, I think you touch upon something really interesting there, which is sort of like how culture change in an industry happens. Sometimes I think about how the existence of the Narwhal has influenced other parts of the news industry just by existing, right? It's like we create this pressure to do environmental journalism because people look over at us and they go, oh God, they're doing environmental journalism and people are reading it and loving it. And we have our readers saying, why aren't you covering climate change? And so that competitive spirit can also lead to some good things. I think as more new media outlets like ourselves show a spirit of collaboration and cooperation, Maybe we'll start to see some changes along those lines, too. That's one of the exciting things about seeing more philanthropic support for journalism is philanthropists always want to see collaboration and partnerships. As we see more news outlets want to get into that game of receiving philanthropic money, you kind of have to start to play ball on collaborating. From your perspective, let's talk about environmental reporting. What is the state of environmental reporting today? And where do you believe more efforts need to be made? It's definitely changed a lot over the last few years. And I think it's changed for the better. I mean, lots of the new media outlets like the National Observer and the TAI cover the environment quite a bit. You're seeing renewed commitments from the Globe and Mail and CBC to cover environment and climate change. I always have said that the Narwhal is like the environment section of the newspaper, except for there isn't an environment section of the newspaper. I honestly think probably there should be an environment section. I mean, it, these issues are so central to the future of humanity. And I think it does us a real disservice when those stories are constantly told in the business section because there are fundamental truths about life on this planet and they aren't GDP or profit margins. They're clean air and clean water. I think we're seeing a real mainstreaming of environmental journalism. Even when we started, it was considered to be quite a radical thing that we were doing. And I think four years later, it's much more mainstream. You've spoken about in 2018, a digital news outlet was considered more of an alternative to mainstream media. Now most people access news through either a reputable brand name publisher on a website or, of course, television is big. Radio is still a certain section of the community as well. But 
What is the future for publishers in Canada? How do you feel about it? I hope that the news ecosystem in Canada is going to get more and more diverse. And to succeed, you have to engage with your audience and have that relationship with audience. And I think lots of different models can succeed. You look at the New York Times and they're doing really, really well because they're creating really, really incredible products that people want to read. The Globe and Mail is doing really quite well. Everybody needs to level up and tap into what their audience truly needs. And there can't be any sacred cows. Like you might have to print less or shift your product. You've really got to be innovative and take that inspiration from other sectors. And but I I honestly think that lots of different models for journalism can succeed in Canada. And I hope that more and more new models that serve particular interests and communities continue to succeed. Are you optimistic about the future of journalism? I am. I am. I mean, I feel like I get the great luxury of being optimistic because of the faith that I see our readers putting in in us every day. I think the way journalism was 20 years ago wasn't great either. And I think a lot of people forget that when they like bemoan the downfall of journalism because there's some bad things that are happening in journalism right now, but there's also lots of really good things. Emma, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Emma Gilchrist is the co-founder, editor-in-chief, and executive director of The Narwhal. You can find her work on Twitter and at thenarwhal.ca. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About the Internet, a podcast for Meta, produced by The Walrus Lab. I'm your host, Mohit Rogens. Thank you to our producers, Nikki Manfredi and Jason Hertrick, and our audio editor, Michael Allen, who helped put together this episode. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and share it with a friend.